Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Happy Friday, everyone. For anyone who's been following these Evox episodes, you'll know that the last few weeks I was in a bit of a funk and I just feel like I'm finally on the other side of it doing that Evox series on dissociation, which you can look back. There's some of the most recent Friday episodes. And I'm. it's really perfect timing because I'm leaving this week for a vacation, which Omid and I haven't had a vacation since pre-COVID. And so it's long overdue for sure, but I feel like it's so perfectly well-timed feeling like I'm coming out of this fog. I'm so excited. I have this renewed energy, excitement, vigor, and and also just like, a, you know, you need to step away sometimes to get a little bit more clarity. And that's what I'm excited to use this trip for. Yes, to kind of let loose a little bit, get a nice tan, but also to just disconnect from the world I've been living in the last two years, which is a beautiful world, but sometimes when you're in something so deeply, it's hard to get a perspective anymore. And so I'm excited to use this trip to take a break from it, let all the outside voices, all the outside tasks and duties and responsibilities just kind of get put from my mind for a little bit so that I can hopefully continue to get more and more clarity and just some rest, honestly. (laughs) But with all that said, because I'll be traveling, I decided for this Friday's episode to re-release an interview with Dr. Ellen Vora that I had with her right when the podcast launched. And even to this day, this is one of my favorite interviews that I've had on the podcast for, I mean, if you don't follow Dr. Vora, you absolutely should. Although chances are you do because she's very well known just in general, but especially in the more holistic alternative medicine world, she is a holistic psychiatrist. And we talk all about anxiety and true anxiety versus false anxiety and how a lot of times There can be physiological things going on like vitamin deficiencies, blood sugar imbalances that create this feeling inside of us that truly feels like anxiety, but it's really a physiological response that we have so much control over. And then that true anxiety is something that we can then look at so much deeper. But a lot of what we might be experiencing on a daily basis might just be that false anxiety or maybe like physiological anxiety. What I love and what I think is so full circle about this is in this interview, she references that she's working on a book about this concept of true anxiety versus false anxiety. And just this year in 2022, she released her book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. 
which I read, I was sharing about all on my social media. It was phenomenal. I'm so grateful this book exists because it touches on so many things related to anxiety. She talks about nutrition and movement and all of these different practices. There really isn't anything out there like it. And I know that's so cliche to sound to say, but I read it in like a week and I have recommended it to so many people since. It really is a must read, honestly, just in general, but especially if you are someone who is finding that you're feeling anxious, you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed on a regular basis, this is 100% a book you should be reading. So I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes. And I use tips from her book, from our interview all the time. I've been using them since we had this conversation two years ago, especially the topic on blood sugar. That was such a game changer for me. Next week, I'll be back with another Evox episode on Friday per usual. I'm so excited and grateful for this time of rest and fun and play that I'm going to get to have over the next few days. I hope all of you have an amazing weekend. And with that, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Ellen Bora. I'm so honored and excited to have you on here because like I said before the recording, I have been following you for some time now and your approach to mental health, to emotional health is so groundbreaking and refreshing. And I'm just so excited for you to get to share that with all of us today. Leanne, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So I always ask before we dive into everything if you can share just a little bit of your background with us so we can get to know you a little better, your journey, and then particularly your journey into holistic psychiatry. Sure. Yeah. My journey. Um, yeah, it was kind of a shit show, to be honest. <laughs> I was a really unhealthy, unhappy med student and um, felt really out of alignment with what I was being taught. I used to have this recurrent dream in med school, which was that I was stuck on a train speeding in the wrong direction and I couldn't get off. And it, oh, it wow. was a little bit how it felt to be um, being trained in conventional medicine, which I, you know, where I am now, I I have immense gratitude for that education. I feel like it's given me such a foundation and such a way of understanding human health. But I also think I couldn't practice in a way that felt um, in alignment for me were it not for all the additional training I've done. Because I basically felt like I was being taught how to put patients on a cocktail of medication. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't, it was sometimes patching people together, but it wasn't really helping people thrive and truly feel empowered in their own health. Um, people felt broken. People felt like they needed me or they needed a prescription. They didn't feel whole unto themselves. And meanwhile, in parallel with that, I was super unhealthy. And here I am like a doctor and doing everything seemingly right. But I had polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, I couldn't poop. I couldn't get my period. I had acne. Mm. I couldn't focus. I had migraines, joint pain. Everything was going wrong in my body. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so I, it was a long and pretty inefficient journey of figuring out how do I get myself well? How do I actually get my patients well? 
And, um, you know, I wouldn't trade any of those inefficiencies, but I do try to help make that process a little bit more efficient for my patients and basically say, let me save you a decade <laughs> just to, mm-hmm. you, you know, right now, here's what it's going to take most likely for your body to get back into a state of balance. Mm-hmm. So now what, what, at what point was it during med school? Was it during your psych, psychiatry training that you were like, I don't know if this is what I want to do, or did you sort of come across someone doing something differently that turned the light on for you? Um, I think, I mean, I was in a state of crisis about it throughout like the 10 years of med school residency. And I also took a year off to do a research fellowship. Um, there were a couple glimmers of clarity. Um, one glimmer of clarity that I had was, um, I had never had acupuncture in my life. I hadn't, I didn't really know anybody who got acupuncture, who was an acupuncturist. It wasn't something on my radar, but I'd say maybe my first connection with an intuitive thought that I was aware of was just this knowledge of, I need to study acupuncture. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where that came from. Um, but it felt that was, I think my first recognition of, um, being kind of invited to step onto my path. And so I just was drawn magnetically to studying acupuncture in med school. And then I would say I had another glimmer of clarity when I um, met a mentor of mine named Deborah Cabanis, and she was one of the psychiatry attendings when I was in med school. And I was trying to decide what specialty to do. I was mostly navigating that decision from a place of burnout. And I was basically thinking, what won't hurt me? (laughs) I'm thinking, should I be a dermatologist so that I have reasonable work-life balance? And like, because I just felt like med school was hurting me and I felt really burned out and exhausted and depleted. Um, But the people in my life who knew me would laugh when I said I was going to do dermatology. They're like, you're Ellen, you're not a dermatologist. (laughs) I mean, I was fascinated with the human condition, with psychology, with what made people tick, with the bigger questions in life. Um, Nothing against dermatology, but I think at the end of the day, that work wouldn't have fully fulfilled me or held my attention. Um, But psychiatry didn't appeal to me really, because when you do your psychiatry rotation, you know, you're just taught how to put people on Zyprexa essentially. And Mm. someone who's really, um, really symptomatic and you help kind of numb them. And I didn't want any part of that. Um, but I met this mentor, Deborah Cavanis, and she had been like me, an undergraduate. Um, she was an English major. She also liked the gray areas, the complexities of the human condition. Um, questions that don't have easy answers, um, and sort of holding people in their full humanity. And so I saw a path through the way she practiced. And I was like, okay, I could see myself in her shoes. I could see myself approaching health in this way. I ended up sort of taking a departure from like, she's a Freudian psychoanalyst. Um, and so that was, that ended up being pretty different from what I do now, but she was my first glimmer of, okay, I could see myself having a fulfilling career in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you combine so elegantly so many different areas of health, which is one of the things that I absolutely love. And I'm curious, where did you, so you studied acupuncture, and I know that, and I know that you're also a yoga teacher. But from what I understand of medical school, you actually don't get a lot of education in regards to nutrition, even lifestyle. So where did you go to get that extra information to then use and sort of create this well-rounded, you know, treatment plan for your patients? 
Yeah. So no, you don't get very much nutrition education in med school. If I'm remembering correctly, I think we had a single 45 minute lecture on nutrition. And to be honest, the the doctors of America would have been better off without that lecture because it was misinformation, right? I mean, I know now it was teaching us the party line of a kind of orthodoxy of nutrition science, which is very deeply influenced by the food industry. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they're teaching us skim, skim milk, low fat dairy and skinless chicken breast, you know, Mm -hmm. like this lecture has been sponsored by Nestle. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) um, I, you know, at the time, and that is how I was eating. And that's why I, my body could not function. Um, I was like, what's wrong with honey bunches of oats with 2% milk? I think I'm doing everything right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a slow balance, complete meal. (laughs) So, um, and, and so, yeah, no, I knew I needed to go elsewhere to learn. Um, These were sort of early days of the internet, you know, and I was kind of in the wild, wild west of Google um, and learning a lot of nutrition from just like the voices in the cyber land that were saying like, Hey, are you constipated? Try eating this way. And I was desperately just typing like, yes, how please help me. Um, so I wasn't getting that help in, in the conventional medical system. Um, it's, there's a certain amount of like acknowledging privilege and resources because getting all this additional training was expensive. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's a problem. Cause I was also, you know, making very little money as a, I mean, in med school, you're just totally a student, um, paying. And then in residency, you're making less than minimum wage. And, um, throughout I had to f- sort of foot over, uh, or fork over money for, studying acupuncture and becoming a yoga teacher and studying functional medicine. And it was pricey. It felt like the right allocation of funds in my life. It felt like the right sacrifice to be making, but it was a real leap of faith and, Mm -hmm. you know, a a bit of a financial discomfort to just kind of trust that I needed to learn different approaches to healing than what I was being taught, Mm -hmm. which was like med school was not cheap too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, it's not, within reach for everyone. And it's not a comfortable financial um, risk to take for so many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I love that you followed that intuition, even though maybe intellectually, logically, it may not have made a lot of sense to many other people. Yeah. 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 It didn't make sense to me, to be honest. I never (laughs) knew how it was all going to come together. Um, It felt like really uncharted territory to combine yoga and nutrition and acupuncture and psychiatry. And I would explain it to myself and I'd be like, how is this going to work? Is this going to work? And I couldn't really tell what I was going to do. I was like, well, I have the patient lying on an acupuncture table, naked with needles, and then we're going to do therapy. <laughs> but um, in, in a yoga pose. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like a normal clothes with downward dog. But um, it does actually work. And it, and it makes perfect sense to me now. But like so many things, it's so clear now, but it was really hard to see where I was headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I almost wish we were meeting in different circumstances, because I think we're going to talk a lot about coronavirus and just this pandemic and where the world is at from a mental point. Um, Although I'm grateful to have met you under any terms, but you know, there's so many things I want to touch on here. I think you have such a great perspective and I really want people to feel, I don't want this to come across as, you know, you have anxiety, just beat it under the rug. You shouldn't be feeling that we need to get rid of it. No, I really want this to feel as almost permission that it's okay to feel those feelings. In fact, it's actually instrumental 
that we feel those feelings and then release them. And so then we can say, this is what I have. This is what I'm working with right now. And now I can go about looking at the factors that maybe I should let go during this time. And then the factors that I should bring in during this time to just help support me. But it definitely needs to start with that recognition and then that release and sort of changing the environment. So I, I just would love to hear your thoughts on where you're seeing, you know, what are you seeing come up particularly during this time? And then what are the factors again, maybe we should be avoiding right now? And then what can we really bring in to support us? Yeah, I love the way you put that, like that it can even be instrumental to feel it. Um, I think that the way I've been thinking about this lately, I'm, I'm writing a book now on anxiety, and I've forced me to really clarify how I'm thinking of anxiety. And um, I think that there's false anxiety and true anxiety. And false anxiety, it's all these ways that our physical body gets out of balance. And then that trips us into a stress response. And we find that, um, like, we're just feeling a sense of dread or a sense of anxiety or we're panicked and we're not exactly sure why it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and I think that's often very physiologic. That could be sensitivity mm. to caffeine. That could be blood sugar swings. It can be um, food intolerance, inflammation, a dysbiosis or an imbalance of the bugs in the gut. Um, it can be so many different things. It can just be chronic sleep deprivation or disconnection with like sunshine and nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to do a survey and really take stock of all the different potential root causes of false anxiety and start to see what's available to us in terms of pushing things gently back into balance. It can get overwhelming because when you're anxious, it's not like you're looking for a list of 30 to do's of like, here's how to get everything back into balance. Some people are, some people want those actionable items, but sometimes it gets overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But once you start to, to use a term from my colleague, Kelly Brogan, disburden the body of that those inflammation factors and basically all that unnecessary false anxiety and what you're left with is the true anxiety and true anxiety is not pathologic it's not something we should attempt to medicate away or like breathing exercise away it's there as a guide it's there to help us it's um it can sometimes be the body communicating to us hey something's out of alignment in our lives um, maybe it's our job, maybe it's our relationship, maybe it's um, something we said to somebody a while back, you know, it's something is gnawing on us and basically saying this is out of alignment. And then sometimes it's part of our greater mission or calling, like for some people it's climate change or it's something to do with coronavirus. You know, it's something where you're feeling called on a much more global scale to say something's not right here and it's a call to action. It's like, let's mm -hmm. go and respond. Um, and I think it can also be like, it, it's just, it can be our, I think that anxiety talks like first it whispers and then it talks and then it shouts. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's even just a guide back home to ourselves where it's like, Hey, this relationship first with the self um, whether it's just like small zillions of micro moments in our lives where we're betraying ourselves, usually due to our conditioning to be people pleasers and to be self-sacrificing and to just always meet everybody else's needs before our own. So I think sometimes anxiety is just the body tapping on us and saying, like, come back here, listen, um, and then just make sure we're right with ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
So I love, so there's two things that are going on. And I think maybe in a normal everyday life when there's not a global pandemic going on, oftentimes a lot of the anxiety we're experiencing is that false anxiety. It's coming because we just ate something full of preservatives and fake dyes and fake fragrances. And it's literally creating inflammation in our body that's causing a stress response or we never get outside. So we don't have enough serotonin to even make those happy hormones, whatever. So that is going on with a lot of us anyways. There's not, there's not always that real anxiety happening, but I think that the sort of uniqueness of the situation we're in now is that we, we do kind of have both, you know, we've got still some of that false anxiety happening. And then many, many of us have that true anxiety, you know, for different reasons and in varying degrees, just because of however this has affected us. And there's no way this hasn't affected anyone. So I, I don't know, you kind of guide me here. Where do you think the better the better place to start with is? Is it to start with like, let's get rid of that false anxiety first and here's some of the things we can focus on. So then we can see what is the real anxiety. Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I guess there's like pre-coronavirus where that's totally where I would start with all my patients. So as like, let's work on this first. And then what remains is the true anxiety. And let's listen to that. That can be our guide. Right now, there's a very valid true anxiety that's nearly universal at the moment, which is um, just sensing the suffering that's happening, sensing the anxiety around us, like picking up on all the anxiety of of coronavirus. And it's complicated. There's a lot of different um, kind of different layers of anxiety that come with it. Um, And so I think that these days what I'm seeing in my patients is a lot of people are having like insomnia at 4am. And so in a way, yes, I'll start with a little bit of false anxiety with that. We'll do the regular sleep hygiene approach, but then I actually think a lot of the 4am insomnia is Um, The fact that we're not getting outside and getting into the sunshine during the day. So our circadian rhythm isn't getting the proper programming that it needs. So sometimes I'll just address it on the false anxiety level and say, you know, this waking up at 4 a.m. is because your circadian rhythm is trying its darndest to make sense of when is day and when is night. But when we're indoors all day, it doesn't always get the right signaling. So get, get outside, get some activity, get some movement in the sunshine. But then I think there is a true anxiety component to all this 4 a.m. insomnia. I think I was I was having it for a week, and I, I think what it was asking of me was to drag my butt out of bed, go into my living room, light a candle, put down a cushion, and sit in meditation. And um, basically to show up with a very open inquiry about what's going on here, like mm-hmm. to really sense my version of the truth, to really listen for what's being asked of me, being asked how can I grow from this? And I think that if you kind of sense that you've done everything to set your body up for proper functioning and there's still this pull on you, then you can treat this as true anxiety and really show up in stillness and silence and just ask and just be curious about like, what is there here for me to listen to? Mm-hmm. So, so when that first pang of fear or that, you know, rapid heart rate comes up or the sweating, whatever those anxious symptoms are, where do you recommend a person starts? Particularly with, you know, I'm thinking of the families who particularly have children who are now home from school. Their literal environment may also be one of chaos. Just where do we even begin (laughs) to just start navigating this? Yeah. So I sometimes think that like when we're already in it, 
it's hard to come back to ground. It's almost like we need, um, you need a kind of control alt delete and then preserve a grounded um, attitude. I think that right now, a lot of what's being asked of us is to be really gentle with ourselves. So I'm a parent and my husband and I, we both work full time from home. Um, and we used to have our daughter in school and then we had a sitter who would watch her in the afternoons and all of that is gone right now. So basically she's home with us and she kind of requires like 24 seven attention and management. And, um, believe me, we've learned the hard way. Like when you get behind the eight ball with remembering when her body needs a snack and when, um, she needs like really devoted attention. And so we're juggling that right now. It's tough. And the first week and a half or so, we were, of course, taking it out on each other, taking it out on ourselves. Mm -hmm. The whole system was chaotic. No one was in a good place. And I think that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but like looking back, it's like, well, of course, everything was coming apart at the seams in our household. And if there was just a way for us to be gentle with each other and gentle with ourselves and really patient and just recognize, ah, this is a super difficult situation. Um, let's not take it out on each other. It's nobody's fault here. Um, so I think that like lots of patience and gentleness on the self. And what I've been saying a lot lately is just to focus on the fundamentals. Like right now, there's a lot on social media that's saying, do this fancy self-care, do, you know, master this, do this super long exercise routine or this meditation or take more fancy baths or whatever it is. And like, it's all beautiful stuff. And if you have the time and you really want something to sort of take your attention in that way, go for it. But if you want to keep your nervous system on ground level, it's the fundamentals. It's basically early bedtime. It's not bringing the phone into the bedroom. It's keeping your blood sugar stable. It's doing the best you can to make sure that what you're eating has nutrition in it so that you're giving your body what it needs to function well. Ideally, it's not inflammatory foods. Um, and then a little bit of movement sends a signal of safety and okayness to our brain. Um, a little bit of sunshine and fresh air if it's safe and responsible to do that. And then um, I think that any amount of meditation or really anything that's just going to help you reset your nervous system into relaxation response. So maybe it's a breathing exercise for a couple of minutes or just shaking it out. Like this is one of my favorite things to do to reset my nervous system is I'll put on like this sort of tribal drum music and I'll just shake or I'll put on the interest in and I'll dance. But basically something that just really control all deletes the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And these are the ways to actually keep ourselves handling the stressors as well as we can. Mm -hmm. And I think you can never say enough about letting ourselves feel our feelings. Mm -hmm. We're so culturally conditioned to resist our feelings, to think that crying is bad and we should say, oh, I'm sorry, and we should hold it in or not feel weak or whatever it is or be strong. Um, but really like... We, we just need to cancel that approach to feelings. Feelings are um, unavoidable. They're inherently human. They're just what we're here to do and process. And so the more we can just lean into it, let ourselves cry, let ourselves have a freak out, let ourselves really move through it in a very watery way and just feel our feelings completely. That's actually the best way to be in a harmonious dance with our feelings. When we mm -hmm. resist it, it just gets rigid and it persists um, and it kind of grows. When we just go through it, um, then we can flow with it and it's not bad. I cry mm -hmm. all the time and I love it. 
love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's so many things I want to sort of touch on or dive a little deeper in with a lot of those. But one, again, that we've already mentioned is just letting that release happen. And I've sort of been getting into this, letting it release in a physical way. So crying is one of those for sure. But I've, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of John Amaral. Mm-mm. He was on the, he was actually in the Goop, uh, the new Goop that. series. Yeah. yeah. Man, and just I'm sort of like, oh my goodness, like letting whatever sounds need to come out, whatever movements. So he actually has this amazing free seven day workshop you can do with him. And I've been going through that and it's just, I've been calling it in my head, like intuitive stretching, intuitive movement. Cause you really do. You just move, you let the sounds come out, whatever your body feels like doing. And I'm telling you when I'm done doing that, I feel like I just had an hour long therapy session. It's so incredible. So yes, absolutely. Letting ourselves feel it and then express it. And if you need to go into a closet and, you know, groan or scream or whatever, do it, give yourself that time. And then from there, maybe we can start going down this checklist a little bit of, okay, what's happening here? Maybe I didn't have enough fat today and I'm having a blood sugar drop and I need to give myself those good nutrients to sort of stabilize things. Or, you know what? I actually haven't gone outside today. Let me take a minute to do that. And so kind of going down that checklist, but I actually would love if you could dive into that blood sugar and just sort of the chemistry and the science behind it, because I've heard you speak on this before. And I think it's so, so relevant because I've seen it in myself. So what is happening there when our blood sugar is dropping and how can that be related to false anxiety? Sure. Yeah. So um, basically, we're all different in this way, too. And some people, it's sort of genetic, like people of South Asian ancestry are often a little bit more prone to insulin resistance. Um, It's it'll vary by just our habits, our diet and our lifestyle throughout our lives. Um, and then it'll also vary a little bit like for women, where you are in your cycle. But basically a lot of us in modern Western world with our standard American diet and like all the processed foods, we're pretty dysglycemic, which is a fancy word for the fact that our we're not in a great rhythm with how our body manages blood sugar. So if we're eating a diet of refined carbohydrates and sugar and coffee drinks that are really milkshakes and rosé, then what what happens is um, these foods that break down quickly into glucose, um, they spike our blood sugar, and then our insulin responds with it sort of chases that spike, and then we have the spike in insulin, and that causes um, the glucose to go into our cells, and then we have a blood sugar crash in our bloodstream. And so that blood sugar crash feels a little bit different for everybody, but for a lot of people, it feels like anxiety or panic or doom or um, a feeling of you can't focus or you just feel irritable or hangry or you want to eat anything that's not pinned to the ground. And so um, a lot of us are just kind of operating on this roller coaster, like refined carbs for breakfast, blood sugar crash at 11 a.m., refined carbs at 11 a.m., blood sugar crash at 1 um, and up and down and so on and so forth. You see this in kids a lot. Like, mm. um, you know, you'll just see when, and like no shame on parents who find themselves feeding kids processed food. Like I get how hard it is to survive with kids. It's tough. Um, feeding kids real food is such an uphill battle. Um, I'm like about that. And I even definitely stray from it here and there. Um, But so when kids are um, kind of 
just sugar addicted, then they're going to be up on whatever processed food they just ate and hyper and running around and then they're crashing and they're melting down. And that's the toddler version. And then you can sort of start to see how adults are really just giant toddlers and we have our own version. We don't exactly have a meltdown, but we kind of do. And so um, what happens there is it triggers a stress response in the body because first of all, you know, low blood sugar is sort of the original, one of the original survival life or death issues. It's basically saying like, we need food to survive. Um, and also it just seems to be the system of checks and balances in the body. So when you have low blood sugar, part of what your body does, it says, go be hungry. So you'll go forage and acquire more food. But another part of what it does is you secrete your stress hormone cortisol that communicates to the liver and tells the liver to break down the storage it keeps of starch. So it breaks the starch down into glucose molecules and then releases that into the bloodstream, which is great. Saves the day. Now your organs don't fail and you feel better. But what just happened in the body was like a five alarm fire. So you had a stress Mm -hmm. response and, um, you don't want to approach that lightly. You know, it's a stress on the body. It feels like anxiety. It's just something you want to avoid. And so with my patients, I usually want them to do a couple of things. And one is in a perfect world, rehabilitate their diet and their lifestyle to one that keeps their blood sugar stable. So it's like eating real foods with plenty of well-sourced protein and plenty of healthy fats um, and getting carbohydrates, but from starchy vegetables rather than refined carbohydrates and sugar. Um, and staying hydrated, and then even exercise and building muscle helps keep our um, it keep, it keeps us insulin sensitive, so that we basically have better regulation of our blood sugar. And that is a great solution. Um, there is a hack that I'll sometimes have people do, which is to take a spoonful of coconut oil or almond butter, sometimes just right before bed, sometimes at regular intervals throughout the day, to kind of stay ahead of the eight ball, so that your blood sugar isn't crashing. Um, I don't think of that as the definitive solution, but it certainly does help. Mm-hmm. And I do have a question. You know, let's say you you just can't help it. Your your kid's going to have a cookie or something sugary. Does having that alongside a healthy serving of fat help reduce maybe that reaction a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think biologically, yes. And in my experience, yes. So basically okay. what you're doing is you're slowing down the digestion a bit. You're slowing down the release of sugar into the bloodstream, and you're also at least creating a safety net of blood sugar that's going to kind of eke out for a while afterwards. So it creates this little sort of safety net for when the crash is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, in my experience with my daughter, you know, she'll eat sweet things, but we make sure that if she's having mango, she's going to have some nuts with it. You know, she's going to have something that stabilizes her blood sugar, so it's not just pure sugar. Hmm, okay. I love that. I think that's so useful because I you know, it's just not realistic for the masses to not serve their kids any sugar. I mean, even fruit, as you said, is just that form of sugar. So pairing it with some kind of healthy fat, some nuts, some almond butter, even drizzling a little oil over it, um, is such a great way to sort of help reduce that even in us as adults. So then can you also touch on you said reducing inflammatory foods if possible. Can you just sort of list out what some of those might be? Yeah, and it's it's a little bit individual, but there are some common culprits. So in my practice, what I see is um, many people are inflamed by mm, conventional American gluten. 
Um, that's sort of like a whole topic unto itself, but mm -hmm. basically, you know, modern American gluten is sprayed with the pesticide Roundup, which contains glyphosate, which seems to interact with some people's digestive tracts in a way that creates inflammation. Um, sometimes it affects the gut bacteria, so it causes a dysbiosis. Sometimes it causes intestinal permeability. Um, and so a lot of people, I think that their insensitivity, uh, or sorry, their sensitivity to gluten um, is related to that pesticide. Um, for some people, dairy, but not everyone. That's really individual. I'll have patients who, like for me, I'll pop out with acne um, within hours of having dairy. Um, some of my patients, it seems to be a really good source of nutrition for them, and it just works for their body. So it's really variable. Um, industrially processed vegetable oils, things like canola oil and corn oil and soybean oil, safflower oil, those I think are an underappreciated source of inflammation. Um, they're like, people know to talk about gluten and dairy at this point. People aren't talking too much about cooking oils. Um, I have found that's been a really interesting insight of this era of quarantine is that I usually will eat outside of the home at least a couple meals of the week, basically, because whether I have dinner with friends or you're just out taking a walk on a Saturday and you go grab some food somewhere. And now that we're really at home so much of the time and eating almost exclusively home cooked food, my digestion has actually really never been better until this past weekend when we actually did order takeout and then I got like totally inflamed and um, we're not, you know, this is, there's no video with this, but if you could see the video, <laughs> you kind of see I'm breaking out. There's been like a little inflammation in my body. And so I've, I've found that to be really telling is that when I'm really stripping away all the inflammatory cooking oils, um, everything works really well in my body, but I reintroduce it and my body says, I don't like that. Um, for some people, sugar plays an inflammatory role, I think primarily in how it interacts with our gut flora. Um, and those are basically the common culprits that I see in my practice. Okay. And can you break down just a little bit of what it is about those vegetable oils that can cause that inflammation? Um, it's a good question. I mean, they're basically highly processed and sometimes they're rancid um, and they they seem to impact gut flora, but I think it goes beyond that and I don't totally understand it. Um, but basically it, I don't know, it's something that the body did not evolve with and doesn't really recognize. And it sort of behaves like any processed food. It's just a foreign substance and our immune system gets provoked by these things that it doesn't recognize as food. Mm -hmm. And I, as far as what I've read too, a lot of those aren't meant to be, they're already broken down, which has made them inflammatory. And then when we heat them again, that's just creating even more inflammation, mycotoxins, all of that. So, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, as far as I understand, like avocado oil is a good one to cook with. And then olive oil is a great one to have sort of as a cold on, on foods. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It clutters the kitchen countertop, but we keep an array of different kinds of oils and fats for different purposes, but we generally will cook with a combination of ghee and avocado oil. Okay. Um, but also, I mean, in my household, we eat meat and I do believe that fatty cuts of meat from healthy animals are healthy fats. And that's like a little bit more debated. You know, you have people mm -hmm. now acknowledging healthy fats are important, but they kind of just mean like olive oil and avocados. But mm -hmm. I actually, when I say healthy fats, I mean grass-fed butter and grass-fed ghee. And I even mean like 
pork. So <laughs> from a healthy mm. animal that was pasture raised. So, mm. um, so we'll sometimes use like, we'll make a little bit of bacon in the pan and then use the remaining grease from that as a cooking fat for the next thing we're going to cook, like we'll saute greens or potatoes in the grease from that. Um, but yeah, we cook with avocado oil and ghee when we're at applying heat. Um, coconut oil, like expeller pressed coconut oil is okay for some lower heat things. And then finishing with olive oil, um, like to put it over a salad or after you've already sauteed or roasted your broccoli, olive oil over it at the end. Okay, great. So I think that covers a lot of, well, you know, you also mentioned as one of some of the things we can do for false anxiety is that early bedtime and getting the phone out. Can you touch a little bit too on blue light Mm -hmm. and how it relates to our circadian rhythms? Yeah. So our circadian rhythm, which is our sleep-wake cycle, it's basically this um, internal clock that's telling us when to feel awake and when to feel tired. And the way I like to think about it is that in the boardroom of evolution, (laughs) they were like sitting around and they're like, how are we going to make the humans awake during the day and sleepy at night? And someone was like, let's just use light as the cue. And then when the sun is shining, they'll feel awake. And when the sun sets and it gets dark, they'll feel tired. And I think this was actually a really brilliant conception. And I don't blame them for not anticipating that we would invent the light bulb and (laughs) mess everything up. And then next thing you know, we're watching Netflix in bed. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that the trouble is that blue spectrum light Um, which doesn't necessarily look blue. Um, It's sort of more like what your computer screen is emitting and what your phone is emitting. Um, These sources of light really mimic sun and go through the eyes to a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus and tell the brain, good morning, the sun is rising, feel awake. And your body cues this whole hormonal cascade that makes us wakeful and suppresses our melatonin, which would make us sleepy. So, um, what's happening is like we're just surrounded by these sources of blue light in the evening after sunset and it's sending such mixed messages to our bodies because we're tired we've been awake since the morning but our brain is getting the signal that the sun is rising and it's suppressing our melatonin and making us release cortisol and so every night we're kind of tired but wired and um so i think it's really helpful for anyone who struggles with falling asleep or staying asleep or feeling rested um, is to minimize really all light exposure after sunset and get more or less involved with that. You know, you can go very minimal and just uh, install things like flux on your computer screen and night shift mode on your phone or night mode on an Android device. Um, Or you can go a little bit more involved and start doing like a dimmer switch on one of your lamps and get orange glasses that you can wear when you're watching Netflix in bed or if you're looking at your computer close to bedtime. And really advanced would be that you're actually down to just candlelight for the last half hour or so before bed, which is kind of lovely, but it's Mm -hmm. involved. Um, And I think just about everyone benefits from getting the phone out of the bedroom, not just because of the blue light, but for like a hundred reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's such a great thing. I have really made so many shifts in terms of blue light in my own. Like I have my blue light glasses on right now awesome. because even an hour of doing an interview on the computer screen, I get a headache. I can't focus as well. I'm exhausted. But if I do it with the glasses on, I'm still fresh after it. But particularly for, you know, we're all inside 
we're all kind of stuck at home. And I know a lot of us are on our screens a lot more. Our kids are on the screens a lot more, but I think it could be a great reminder for parents and families to say, hey, of course your kids can watch TV, but maybe we keep it confined to the daylight hours. Mm -hmm. And then once that sun sets, let's shift to reading some books or coloring or doing Legos or whatever. And if you have the ability to bring the lights down a little bit or do candlelight, whatever, you know, kind of see what makes it work. But I guess what I, I really want people to feel like, okay, there's things I can do that are very realistic and very manageable. And, you know, how can we play with it like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, for us as adults, like there's a lot of options. And I do think that even though we're in an era of social distancing, um, like I live in an apartment building, I don't have a yard, but I get outside every day. I wear a mask when I'm in the elevator and in my lobby. And um, and then when I'm out at the river, if I feel like I'm not close to anybody, I don't even wear a mask at that point. But if I ever felt like I was putting anybody at risk, I would wear a mask. Um, and then um, I think that, you know, being outside and, and getting that true daylight is one of the best things that we can do. Um, true daylight during the day, true darkness at night. When it comes to kids, like, I love the idea that adults limit screen time after sunset, although it is challenging. For me, what I do is if I've noticed I'm still on a screen, like after, say, 9 p.m., I'll put on blue blocking glasses. It makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. But for kids, I'm always juggling, like straddling these two ideas, which is like to not be precious about anything when it comes to kids. I've learned that firsthand. Like everyone is sort of precious before they have a kid. They think, oh, I'm not going to be like those other parents that look bedraggled and their minivan is covered in Cheerios. And it's like, and then you find yourself like, oh, look at that. I am that parent. It becomes, it's becomes really, you're just surviving with kids. It's a, it's a survival process. But I also think that these little things that we can do actually make life easier. I'm always interested in making life easier for parents. Um, It seems really precious up front, but then it actually makes your life easier. Like we all want our kids to sleep well overnight. And what I've learned in my household is that when we get things down to like really dim lighting, salt lamps or candles in the evening after sunset, my daughter will fall asleep more easily and go to sleep. And if someone like FaceTimes us at 6.45 p.m. and they're like, hey, we just want to say hi to your daughter. I'm like, shit. Um, and it's not like I want to decline a FaceTime. It's always a lovely thing. But I realize if my daughter looks at a phone screen close to bedtime, she's always going to be more, um, she's stimulated by it. She's rambunctious. She fights sleep. She basically is like, I'm not tired. Um, and, you know, you can just see it happen right before your eyes that it's affecting her circadian rhythm so we are kind of precious about light it's super annoying to like you know think about trying to take steps towards doing this but then it does make a big difference and helps parents have an easier go at things Mm -hmm. okay great now I do want to talk a little bit about social media mass media just what we're consuming during this time and what your take is on all of that because you know, I, I think I saw someone actually commented on one of your posts saying, I know I shouldn't be looking at this, but I'm almost addicted to it. I can't stop myself from looking at all these news feeds. And what is this? What's going on? How can I stop this? Yeah, that's really common. It's like a sort of compulsion to check the news. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's a couple things. One is that um, we're in the attention economy right now where the commodity the commodity these days is our attention. 
So everyone is basically competing to captivate our attention. And you can see it, right? Like Netflix pours so much money into making great shows and HBO makes a movie every week for <laughs> Game of Thrones, you know, and it's like a feature length film, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and Instagram and Facebook and Reddit and TikTok, like they're really effective at being addictive. And that doesn't mean we have to swear it off. I know that I have a balance of getting benefit from these things and cost. So it's more like that we want to be the driver of the ship. We want to make conscious choices that we don't just get sucked in and we're not just kind of cogs in the machine of the attention economy, but that we're making proactive conscious choices so that we're getting what we want out of it and then not getting sucked into a place that doesn't feel good for us. I think that part of the way people are capitalizing on coronavirus is that they know the human psyche and we um, we are really gripped by fear and like I do think that certain aspects of the media exploit this. They basically know that if they sensationalize and dramatize um, and make things seem very grim and, and very um, scary, we will tune in. And like we don't really need, you don't need to add to the fear factor right now. Life is weird and scary, um, but the news will amplify it. And they're not doing that to make sure that we as citizens are prepared. It's really just so that they get a lot of viewership and they can charge more of their advertisers. So you want to be really aware of what's coming at you that, um, yes, you need to get your information, but you make conscious choices about your information diet. And if you can tell that it's sensationalizing it, or if it's exploiting your, you know, kind of the fact that fear is very, engaging and and kind of really activates us and makes us want to tune in maybe unsubscribe from that Mm -hmm. turn that news off Um, or at the very least batch your news like check in once or twice a day and don't just stay in like an ivy drip plugged into the news Um, i'm really careful about who i follow on instagram and um, i want a really balanced set of different perspectives but I want it like in a way that people are taking very seriously, giving information in a way that's solid and not sensationalizing. And when I see a kind of like fear mongering approach, I usually unsubscribe because I don't think like any of us need extra drama right now. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And I feel like what I've been seeing is people are almost going to consciously or subconsciously to those resources that will confirm the fear even more versus going to resources that will help soothe those fears. So, I mean, personally, I have just been, all I want are numbers. So I'll go to the CDC and I'll go to the WHO. And then just to be sort of a uh, responsible citizen, I'll go to my own city's website just to see any new changes or ordinances. But that is it. I haven't watched a single piece of news. I haven't read a single news article because like you said, it's I don't really believe they have our best interests at heart in all of that. And again, it just doesn't, it's hard almost on a physical level to not get sucked into that. When you read something that's going on, even if you logically know this is being extrapolated, they're trying to make me scared. There's something internally going on that is hard to control. So that's why I just don't even let myself go near it. 
Yeah, I think in a way you hit upon something really important, which is that it is like a little bit of a masochistic addiction. And I think it, it relates to the fact that modern Americans are so addicted to feeling stimulated. Like we love coffee and Adderall and cocaine, you know, it's just like, woo, and to sort of feel really wide awake and on. Um, we're not really a culture that celebrates the yin, the balance, the rest, the surrender, the stillness. And I think that the media knows how to sell us fear. And we keep checking in because we get a shot of adrenaline and cortisol every time we see something like newer and bigger and worse and scarier. And I think that when when we're in that cycle, it's like that stimulates us and gets us up to a baseline of feeling really alert and on. And then if we go a little while without checking in, it kind of drops us to a place of exhaustion from that and depletion from that. And you're looking for another hit that will kind of mm. turn you back on. So in a way, you kind of need to opt out of the whole cycle of um, that fear is what makes you awake and alive and get back to a place of you're awake and alive because, you know, basically because you're breathing and because you're you, you have connection with purpose and meaning in your life and connection with people in your life, sort of a different way of being activated. Mm, oh, I love that. That's so good. Um, and, you know, it's, so it's interesting because I do, I, you know, we've talked sort of about general public and what they can do during this time. And I do want to touch on a little bit and I'll respect your time. So I'll let you go soon. But um, for those people who actually are on some kind of medication for mental health, be it depression, anxiety, stress, whatever, you know, what are, is there anything specific you're saying to those kinds of people or those patients that you have who maybe, you know, already are prone to these and are taking things for these that can help them cope a little bit better? Ooh, so that one is a nuanced topic. It's tricky to navigate it. I would say it's always the right thing to do is like really be true to yourself and then make sure you're in the right hands. So um, like if you are on meds and they're helping you and now we are all dropped into a pandemic, um, take your meds, <laughs> you know, make sure you have a good doc who's helping support you in that process. If you were like starting to think that you wanted to get off of psychiatric medications in some instances, I would say this is not the right time to make a big change like that because it can be so destabilizing and coronavirus is itself destabilizing. So that can be a bit of a perfect storm. But for some people, what their heart is telling them is this is actually the perfect time to do that for a number of reasons. One is living in quarantine and sort of not being asked to meet the same day-to-day -day demands as in normal life. And so it's actually a good time to be sort of dropped to your knees. But also some people feel like something's being really stirred up in them right now that there's like a great awakening happening or a purge. Mm. Um, and I think that some people are feeling really drawn to make changes with their meds in this moment. And I would just caution, um, you know, it's a, it's a whole conversation unto itself, how to do that responsibly, safely, sustainably in a way that actually works. And you don't just find yourself needing to get back on meds. Um, but you want to be working closely with an enlightened practitioner who knows about type tapering off of psych meds and who can support you and set you up with a really good treatment plan. It's not the right time. It's never the right time to just like cold turkey, go off a bunch of psych meds. That's truly, it's something I, I just don't recommend on a lot of levels. I do find that people can have suicidal thoughts in that situation, but I also think it can be a little bit neurologically damaging. And so you really want to approach this with full gravity that it warrants. And you basically 
um, recognize like if your if your heart is calling you to making changes, then you get into care with someone who knows what they're doing, and you take it step by step. Um, but it it can be the right time to do that for some people. Okay, great. And then actually, right before we jumped on this call, I saw a statistic on Instagram saying that um, sales of like the it's like benzo something benzodiazepines yeah. have gone up about 20, 21% this, oh, um, I know in March. And so my first thought is, you know, are there any other natural substances that are really good at calming our system that maybe people can go to first? Like for example, I take valerian root every now and then I'll make valerian root tea at night to help me sleep a little bit better. But I know from my own articles I've written, there are actually quite a few substances that are really powerful at calming us down that don't have a bunch of side effects and aren't going to cause, you know, huge withdrawal symptoms if we want to get off of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've often felt in my career, like I'm like this one woman army fighting against the tidal wave of benzodiazepine addiction because they are really addictive. They are really compelling. Um, a lot of doctors dole them out like candy. A lot of patients find themselves stuck on them. It's a whole big thing. Um, I think that there's plenty we can turn to before benzos. Um, so valerian root is certainly useful, as is passion flower, as is lemon balm. Flower essences work for some people. Hemp oil or CBD works for some people. I love magnesium glycinate for anxiety. I love for people to just, like most of us are deficient in, in magnesium anyway, so just to replete that. Um, and even something like kava can be helpful. Um, so there's plenty of things to try first. Um, I would say there's like a layer of things like um, fennel GABA and um, like cavanese, which I don't actually love because I find them a bit habit forming. Um, some of them are ineffective. Some of them are too effective. But I would say even that before turning to a benzo is preferable. And then my real approach is always like rather than green medicine of like rather than reaching for this pill, reach for this better pill. I really just like people to um, take all the diet and lifestyle steps that actually mean that your nervous system isn't totally fried and that you can cope with the stressors of life. And that's to me, that's like that's the real sweet spot is if you can just feel OK, um, OK enough, which includes OK with big feelings and letting them flow through you in a very watery way mm -hmm. um, that can prevent a lot of um, of need, feeling the need to reach for a pill. OK, in terms of the magnesium glycinate and the CBD, are there any brands that you feel are really clean and reliable? Mm, I think when it comes to magnesium, I really like, um, I like Thorne Research and I like the Mind Body Green line. Um, okay. And when it comes to CBD, there's a lot of good brands right now. I like the website called MissGrass.com, which is this women-led company. And I think they're excellent vetters and curators of good hemp-based products. So that's who I turn to. Okay, awesome. Well, I think, um, gosh, we covered so much and I'm so excited for people to get this. Was there anything else I didn't touch on that you would like to add? I think we covered a lot of ground. There's always okay. But I think just to say with in the age of coronavirus, um, yes, focus on the fundamentals, which like, you know, I could list like one through eight, but then maybe the ninth fundamental is to be really gentle with yourself and really patient with yourself when you can't do numbers one through eight. Like when you can't mm -hmm. do everything right right now, nobody can. And to be really patient with ourselves.
Mm -hmm. And then lastly, any other resources, websites, individuals that you would recommend people to go to for more information similar to this in regards to mental health, anxiety, stress during this time? Oh, I mean, I have so many people that I follow and learn so much from. I could like list a zillion, but um, I learn a lot from Chris Kresser. I learn a lot from Aviva Ram. I learn from Kelly Brogan. I learn from Peter Atia. Um, I learn from Melissa Urban. Um, I learn from the holistic psychologist, Nicole LaPera. There's just like so many badass, amazing people churning mm -hmm. out such excellent content these days. There's no shortage of it. So it's just like, you know, to have enough time to learn all of these amazing mm -hmm. pearls. And then can you share what is the class or the course that you're offering for a pay as you pay as you go or pay what you can? Yeah. So these days I've basically felt called to meet the the needs of coronavirus by offering a donation-based, um, it's kind of a support group, but it's also approaches to holistic mental health. So there's a lot of like where I just teach content about how to approach mental illness holistically, how to use diet, lifestyle, and supplements and lab testing and sleep habits and nutrition, all that, how to help people navigate depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar. Um, and so I've always been doing these courses now for a little while, but I've just changed it to pay what you can just to make it really accessible. Um, cause I don't think, I mean, the financial hardships that people are facing right now makes it that much more necessary to have a course like this. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure anybody can access it. It doesn't matter if you can't pay much at all, it's still there. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I'm always running courses. And so people can always find that on my website, which is ellenvora.com or following me on Instagram at ellenvoramd. And um, I have one starting tomorrow but i'm guessing this won't go live in time. So, um so i'll probably be starting one in about a month from now okay got it great well I'll, i will definitely link to all of that because i really want people to have that information so thank you so much i am truly so excited for this it was completely expansive and i think just filled with information that is just going to fill people with peace and calm and really empowerment in this time and thank you so much. 